Hey guys, my name's Abby and I'm a junior. Um, we're going to be reading from Judges 10 and 11. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and the land of the Amorites, which is, Gilead, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, so that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, uh, thank you for this day and for this time uh, 
for us to come together in community and worship you and hear your word. Um, tonight I want to pray for another ministry on this campus, FCA. Um, thank you for giving our athletes uh, a place to come together and uh, foster a relationship with you and with other Christian athletes. Um, and thank you for giving them hearts and minds for you. Um, bless our time tonight and be with Ruben as he speaks and open our ears to hear your message through him. Amen. I am not Sid. <laughs> you haven't figured that out by now. Um, uh, my name is Ruben, for those of you who don't me know me. Um, and I am, goodness, awkward just like Sid. <laughs> it rubs off on you somehow. It, it is. Man. All right. We're good. I will also occasionally be drinking out of this Nalgene, which is one of the notoriously worst bottles to drink out of, you know, without spilling it on yourself. So just... It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Um, so, yeah, how are you guys doing? Good? Bad? Good? We'll go with good. I got, I got a couple thumbs up. Okay, we're good. Um, so, yeah, I'm Ruben Van de Zand. Uh, I'm an intern, one of the interns for our Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF. Um, and uh, also, I'm really nervous about preaching. This is the second time I've done it, so bear with me. Uh, but RUF, what is RUF? Um, it's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve you no matter where you are um, or who you are. And what that means, as Sid explains really well every week, um, is that RUF is not for one kind of person, um, from one kind of background, or from one scene on campus. Uh, and whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, I'm, we are just glad you're here. Um, so thanks for coming out. Uh, this semester we've been going through the book of Judges. Uh, if you've been paying attention, you've been here for a couple weeks. Um, and later in the semester we'll go through Ruth um, under a series titled Love in an R-Rated World. Um, and we find pretty quickly, as we dive into these stories, that the content is R-rated. If it was made into a movie, this would be pretty gory. Um, there's lots of violence, there's slavery, um, and in the passage for tonight, there's human sacrifice. So it's turning out real great so far. Um, you can thank Sid for giving me this passage. <laughs> so you might be asking yourself as you contemplate how I'm going to preach on human sacrifice. <laughs> like, why is this even in the Bible? <laughs> And the answer uh, to that is simply that it reflects the real world, right? We live in a world today, we can see online in the news, it's a mix of, there are some good things, but there's a lot of bad that goes on. Uh, we have to wrestle with that. We have to, we have to know what to do. And, and both the authors of Judges and Ruth um, try to approach, approach this in a true way that gives us hope uh, by offering us God's love. And as a natural con consequence, when God's love enters this world, it enters into all those messy relationships that we see um, and the situations that both we and the Israelites find ourselves in. Um, so this is why going through Judges is so important. Um, but before we dive in, I'm going to take a moment, collect my thoughts. Hopefully you guys can collect yours as well. Um, we'll pray and we'll see what Jephthah has to teach us about God's reckless love in an R-rated world. Would you join me? Lord, I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for Judges. I thank you for your love and how you've demonstrated it through that. Um, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to gather here to take an hour out of our day um, to worship you, to come and learn more about you, uh, no matter where we are. I ask that you would be with us, that you would open our hearts and our minds, um, and that we would, we would do justice to what we hear from the word. Um, I also pray for me as I'm nervous. Just be with me and help me get through this well. In your mind, I pray. Amen. All right. 
So as I was preparing to write this sermon and I'd settled on the title of Reckless Love, um, there's one movie that came to mind, and I'm sure it came to all of your minds too, which is Taken. You know, the 2008 movie with Liam Neeson? Maybe not. Oh, yes, this is good. So I like to think of uh, Liam Neeson's character as kind of like a, a Jason Bourne character if he had finally settled down. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Basically, like, super military, like, superhuman, takes over the world just by, like, using his fists and maybe a gun at some times. Um, but, yeah, so anyways, Neeson is an ex-spy whose daughter is abducted while traveling in Paris. Um, you know, normal plot points, etc. She made some questionable choices. Um, about this trip. She lied to her father before she went on it. She didn't tell him she was going on a tour of U2, that type of thing. Um, she is staying with a, a friend. Eventually she learns that the place she's staying, there's nobody there to, to look after them. She doesn't have a guardian. That, they're just, there's a lot of things that don't go well. She shares a cab with somebody she doesn't know, gets her into trouble, and eventually gets her into the middle of a sex slave operation, which is, you know, huge turn. This is not good. She's in a dire situation. And right before she gets caught up, she calls her dad. She says, hey, dad, there's somebody here. Something bad's happening. She had just explained what she had done. She just had told him they were going to a U2 concert. She had just explained all that she had done wrong and lied to him about. And the first thing her dad does is not, um, not kind of condemn her and say, wait a second, you lied about your trip to Paris. You didn't tell me about all this. You didn't tell me like what you were doing. He says, "Hey, I love you, uh, and I'm going to be there, and I'm not going to stop. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to find you." Um, so this whole mix, this whole movie is a mixture of a sort of like a Jason Bourne Saving Private Ryan idea, where Neeson goes all super, super secret agent on an organization that abducted his daughter, um, and there's nothing that stands in his way. I mean, guns blazing, car chases, everything. It's really good. Actually, it's not. It got a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes, so. <laughs> It was like nine years ago, it sounds great in my mind, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh man, that's pretty bad. <laughs> the point here is that Neeson doesn't stop for anybody. His daughter's in trouble, and she is the, the object of his affection, um, even after she lies. You know, he doesn't stop. He doesn't say, hey, you've, you've hurt me. I'm not going to help you out until you fix that. He says, no, I'm going to come right now, and his, immediate, his response is immediate and without bounds. Everything at his disposal is put towards her rescue because he loves her. Um, you know, I think that's something we all kind of want on a deep level. Uh, I certainly do. And there's, in that reckless love that he shows, there's this, this freedom to fail and a freedom to not live up to expectations, but still know that the love is, is there for you. Um, and we see in this passage uh, for the week that there's a similar story, a story of a God who loves his people recklessly, knowing full well, well what their failures have been in the past and what they will be in the future. Um, and he still loves them, and the same is true with us. Um, God loves us recklessly so that we are free to fail. The story of Jephthah, and really the rest of Judges as well, is a story of God's dogged pursuit of his people, a people who continually fail him and continually to cry out for help um, and are continually in need of a savior from their oppression. Um, we see time and time again other countries coming in and taking them over, constant need for somebody to come and save them, a lot of judges. And this story in particular is disturbing and problematic Right? The deliverer that God raises up for the Israelites, we find is deeply tied to the pagan rituals of worship and sacrifices his own daughter. Like That's going to be hard to stomach. Um, honestly, sometimes we would love nothing less to find you know, God raise up an upright judge who always does the right thing um, in the eyes of the Lord, and then we don't have to wade through this muck that is the real world. Um, then people like me don't have to preach on it. But you know, I would argue that the opposite is more comforting. Um, because the real world is what we live in. Um, seeing God use an imperfect human being as his method of deliverance 
shows us that God still loves us in our failures. Um, is that something you desire? I think that's, that's definitely something I've, I've loved to, to gather from this judge. Um, and I would encourage you to think about that as we wade through the life of Jephthah. So, so ultimately, we see Jephthah, we see through Jephthah that a human deliverer simply won't cut it, and we need Jesus to save us. So real quick, this is the, the short outline. I think it should be on your handout as well. Um, we'll be going through these passages. I cut out a lot. I'm sorry. You did a great job reading wherever you are down there. Abby, you did a great job. Thank you for getting through all those names. Um, there's still a lot to go through. But quickly, we'll, we're going to go through the cycle, um, what the Israelites continually go through and how they continually fail God. Um, that's 6 through 16. The deliverer, that's both Jephthah. And then we see, as he points to Jesus, that's uh, chapter 10, 17 through roughly through 11. There's some skipped things there. Uh, and then the deliverance. That's 29 through 40 in chapter 11. So if you've been following along in Judges for the past few weeks, verse 6 should sound very familiar to you. That the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? We've seen this time and time again. We see this same matter-of-fact statement in chapter 2 after the death of Joshua in chapter 3 with Othniel and Ehud. Uh, we see this in chapter 4 with Deborah and Barak, and then in chapter 6 again, both before and after the delivery of Israel by Gideon. So this happens a lot. You know, even more than just, it's not just a lie about a U2 concert. This is time and time again. It's not even as if the Israelites continue to find new ways to anger God. It's like the way that a five-year-old might continually explore new ways to avoid pushing her teeth every night to the chagrin of her parents. Like, be a little creative here. Change something up. Like, even your lie, don't just say, I, I, I brush my tooth, or I brush my teeth, and then... They go and they again check it. Like, it's dry. It didn't happen. Like, put some water. Like, change something. <laughs> yeah. No, the Israelites continue to fall back to worshiping the same gods, um, same idols. And um, sometimes when they get their hand on it, they add more to that mix. But it's still the same thing. It's this idolatry that they, they continue to fall back to. Um, so that's, that's similar as before. But you also may have noticed that there's a lot that's different about this cycle. Um, narrator here spends a lot more time emphasizing the list of the gods in successive order. Um, you've got the Baals, the Astartes, which is the Asherahs, which is he's talked about before, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Amorites, the gods of the Philistines. I mean, that's a long list, right? It's a lot of gods for somebody to turn to. Um, it's no longer just doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The narrative here is trying to make a point. Um, now this isn't just a short lapse in judgment um, or an honest mistake. This is like a purposeful and deep abandonment of God um, and in just, just in case that point wasn't driven home, he specifically says the Israelites abandoned God and did not worship him. So at this point, there's no questioning what the Israelites have done with their relationship. They've given it up, right? Each of the gods here, it kind of helps to understand what they do to kind of understand what this, where this idolatry comes from. Each of these gods holds a significance. Um, some were gods of fertility. Some were gods of nature. All of them in some form or fashion, promise something in return for a sacrifice. Um, sometimes that was human sacrifice. Oftentimes it was just whatever you could give them, whatever they had deemed a decent transaction. Um, and especially amongst the polytheistic nature of the Canaanites, where uh, a lot of, where Israel kind of took over, it would have seemed ridiculous to disregard or neglect any of these gods who could potentially bring harm to them. Um, so these are just sitting here. What do they do? They weigh their options, and they decide not to put all their eggs in one basket. I mean, we're always told, I'm always told, diversify your portfolio, even though I don't have one. Like, but like things like that, you never put all your eggs in one basket because you never know what happens if it fails you. What happens if it fails you, right? So you want, you want to hedge your bets, and that's exactly what the Israelites do. I mean, they live 
Imagine being a farmer, and imagine you only have one God who controls the wind and the rain and the crops, and your family and the workers that come from that. Like, that's kind of risky. One God, right? So for them, all it takes is adding God to the list and a few more sacrifices to, to ensure their survival. Um, but this is idolatry. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. This is Israel turning to something other than God for their security. This is Israel's buying into false promises of the cultures around them. What lured the Israelites and what often lures us in the same way uh, into our own idolatry is that what they sought for wasn't necessarily wrong or evil. These are sometimes good things, often great things. Food is good. Clothing's good. You know, I love my family. Um, they're not evil. The problem comes from they made these the ultimate things, right? By hedging their bets, they try to take control in their own hands of what their ultimate happiness looks like and where they find that. So what was God's response to this, right? Is it the same as normal? Is it the just, all right, I'm going to give you guys a deliver. I'm going to get you out of this. Uh, no, actually, it's a little bit different. If we look at the passage again, we see God doesn't deliver them immediately. He doesn't say, wow, I never thought to tell you guys to worship other gods, but that sounds like a great idea. No, the Israelites abandoned God, God and says his anger was kindled against them and he sold them into slavery um, for 18 years. And then when they come and they cry to him, he says, go and cry to the gods that you have chosen. Let them deliver you from you. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, why would God do this? God gave them over to what they wanted. Um, and that's their punishment, right? They wanted to be subject to these idols. They wanted what the idols gave them. What the idols gave them was oppression. Um, they sought ultimate happiness and security from things that couldn't deliver. Um, it says, this is, this is tied as well as I could to it. Um, but when I thought about happiness and things that couldn't deliver, I was thinking about... Uh, a lot of my childhood stories, a lot of things that I did for fun and I thought were, I thought were safe and great for young kids to do, but you'd talk to your parents, they'd be like, this is stupid. Why would you ever think about doing this? And I don't know if I've ever told my parents this, so if they're listening uh, on the podcast, welcome to my life. Um, but there was one day I was playing with my friends, we were probably sixth or seventh grade, and we were, um, we're kind of bored, I think we were walking back from my place to his house, and there these two ditches across, his house is here, and there are these two ditches here, with um, probably about four feet, four feet deep, um, with lots of rocks in the bottom. Do you know? Where I'm, do you see where I'm going with this? So you have you have a couple people stand over here in that ditch, and a couple people stand over here in this ditch, and you throw rocks at each other, right? <laughs> like that sounds like great, and it was it was kind of fun for a little bit, right? Like this promise, like we're really happy, we enjoy throwing rocks. <laughs> no no cares in the world until. I'm pretty sure it was me. I'm not quite sure. It's been a while. Somebody, somebody decides to start throwing rocks as fast as they can across the top of the, the concrete that's right there. And somebody else pokes their head out and gets hit square in the forehead and starts, starts bleeding. Um, yeah, so ultimate satisfaction might be a stretch for that, for that story, but surely we thought we would enjoy enough to do it, right? Um, I, I walk away feeling horrible. Um, but as obvious as it may be to an adult that throwing rocks at each other for fun is not going to ultimately bring you happiness, we are still often blinded, that's metaphorically not intentional, um, by, the promises of our own, <laughs> by the promises of our own rock wars, right? Um, finding some satisfaction in your job or your friendships 
and the food that you eat, the clothes you wear, or probably most applicable right now, like academics. And I'll be cautious here because I don't want it to sound like these are necessarily bad things. Um, I went to university and I enjoyed studying. I mean, I love to eat good food and sometimes McDonald's. I love my friends, I enjoy my job. And again, I'm just gonna keep ripping on Sid here, except for when he makes me preach on Jephthah. <laughs> and these are all gifts from God. Uh, the problem here arises, um, as Tim Keller puts it pretty well, when good things become ultimate things. Um, and we, we end up saying, unless I have that, I am nothing. Uh, and this is what the Israelites wrestled with, and this is often what we wrestle with um, when it comes to the good things of this world. Um, so practically, what does that look like? Like, what is, what is something like academic promise? If you pledge your life to your grades, maybe not in a cultist, ritualistic pledge, pledge, but in terms of pledging your time and your mental health, what do you get in return for your hard-spent effort? I mean, you, do, you, do, you, might, you might get better grades, better social standing, especially if, if busyness is a social value. Um, perhaps even a better job prospect, but at what price and with what guarantee? And that guarantee is kind of the kicker here, right? There is no contract. There is no ratio of time spent in studying to the amount of happiness you get out, or even time spent studying to grades, right? We've all been there, the hours and hours you put into studying for the organic, organic chemistry test, or refining that English paper only to get back a grade that puts you in tears. And when your academics don't deliver, it's, not your, uh, it's your fault, not the false promises of academics. It will tell you that you didn't do enough, that you didn't study hard enough, you didn't study long enough, so it demands more. It demands more time, more studying, more devotion, all for promises of ultimate satisfaction that, again, are never really delivered. It's just a cycle. It's Sisyphus continually trying to roll his stone up to the top of the mountain, over the hill, and then it, it falls back down and he has no time to rest. And this is the Israelites, continually trying to find their ultimate joy and happiness in their physical idols, only to learn time and again that the only reward from that idol is destruction and oppression and disappointment. And for the umpteenth time they cry out to God, knowing that he has delivered them in the past, and assume, assume he will do so now. You know, God's original response, though, um, is one you might call tough love. Um, and it is just that. It's God giving them over to the consequences of their sin. Um, it's not really until, until verse 15 and 16 when we see the Israelites turn from their idols and worship God that we see God bring up a deliverer. Right? They, they see God as an idol again. They see him as like a heavenly vending machine for them to oh, hey, sorry, God, we're going we're gonna to try and we're going to talk to you again. Um, we'll pull the, pull the lever and get something back from you. No, God, God's not an idol. He's not like that. He desires a relationship. So it's not until the people realize that, that God comes back and brings them a deliver. Um, and that's where we get Jephthah. So, make that one a little awkward. <coughs> <laughs> Go down. All right. All right. So if you're taking notes, this is going to be the second point. Uh, we, we start looking at the deliverer, who Jephthah is. Um, we look at the beginning of chapter 11. We get an introduction to him. Um, the man that God chose to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. We're like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be good. Right? And it actually starts off pretty strong. He's a mighty warrior. Um, and this would help in defeating the Ammonites. But we learn pretty quickly that there's a lot that goes against his character. Right? He's the son of a prostitute. Um, which in that time was pretty bad. He was hated and driven away by his family in his hometown. Okay, that's still getting worse. He lost his inheritance, doesn't have much to live on, lives with bandits and outlaws. Okay, and then he went raiding with them on a regular basis. Like who? Who is this guy? If we make a pro-con list here, I'm pretty sure he's pretty. He's living pretty heavily on the con side. Um, in a time and age when lineage was everything, 
being born of a prostitute was like a social death sentence. I mean, even with the same father, his half-brothers took advantage of him and kicked him out and stole his inheritance. And they said, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. They despised him. And after escaping a deeply dysfunctional family, Jephthah bands together with some morally questionable compatriots in a business that takes advantage of those weaker than himself, right? So this guy's not quite in good standing right now. But nevertheless, this is who God chooses to lead Israel to victory over the Ammonites. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, this is something odd about this character. Um, he's like a crime boss, right? And God hires him to help the Israelites out. This is like, this is going to be another movie reference here. This is even older. This is The Godfather. How many of you watched that? Like two hands. Three, four, five. Okay, a little better. So you got Vito Corleone, who's this head of a crime family in... Um, He's got wide reaches over New York City. His wealth lies in shady business deals, favors, and protection services. And by that, I mean extortion. Like, he's certainly not above the law. And he roughs up and kills whoever gets in his way and has few qualms about breaking whatever law is necessary to stay on top. I mean, sure, Don Corleone, if you hired him to try and save your country, might help you out. But surely you can find someone with a more upright character to try and help. And this is how Jephthah is pictured in Judges 11. Sure, he wasn't... He was certainly the victim of a situation, the victim of a bad family life and horrible brothers, but it doesn't change the fact that he's still a crime boss in the land of Tob. That is where he is with these bandits. Yeah, uh, we'll see later on, he was, he was prone to rash and unformed decisions, yet God still uses Jephthah. Not despite who he is, but because of who he is. Jephthah's life, as uncomfortable for us as it may feel, to see God choose someone who seems so far off the beaten path, has prepared him and qualified him to bring salvation for his people from the Ammonites. So why does God choose a reckless character like Jephthah? Doesn't God know that Jephthah will fail him later? I mean, we just read about his promise and the the human sacrifice that comes up later. Doesn't God know he hired a loose cannon? God chooses Jephthah in his story to show that his love is not bounded by our limited notion of his affection for us. But that God in his love, his reckless love, he pursues people. See, Jesus, the perfect savior sent by God, was also born into a low condition born in a manger. He was also, we see in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, right? And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In similar ways to the rejection that Jephthah experienced within his community, but in a global manner, Jesus rejected was rejected by those he came to save. The salvation Jesus brought was to a world that didn't even know him. We see this in John 1 and 10 through 12. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, like created through him, and yet the world did not know him. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right right to become children of God. This is reckless love. This is a love that God expresses through calling anyone an heir who comes to him through his son, Jesus. And that includes me, that includes you, and that includes the questionable Jephthah characters that we ourselves, quite frankly, sometimes look like. God loves us recklessly so that we can come to him as we are, free to fail, knowing unequivocally in a way that leaves no doubt in our minds that God loves us. And what does that mean? That means that God wants you in your entirety, right? As God wanted Jephthah, because you are exactly what he wants. He loves you, and that includes the failures we find ourselves in, honestly, more than we'd probably like to admit. That means that God still wants us despite the fact that we continue to turn to our self-made idols whether they be carved on solid wood or on paper. 
God still wants us if we turn to alcohol every night for comfort or if we turn to the library every night for comfort. God delivers us from our sins knowing full well what our future holds. So what is this deliverance? And this is your, this is your third point. Let me check the time here. Okay, so what is this deliverance? Um, if you're following along, point three, the deliverance in chapter 11 seems to be quite decisive. You know, and not really that big of a deal for Jephthah, seeing as the narrator only gives two verses. That's 32 and 33. Um, to mention a massive victory he has over the Ammonites, right? So it turns out Jephthah was exactly the man for the job. Who would have thought? That's a rhetorical question, but hopefully it's obvious that the answer to that is God. <laughs> so, yeah, so what causes, us to, what causes us to pause in the story here is not Jephthah's victory. I think we're all fine with that. We understand that he was a mighty warrior and that he was able to lead his people to victory. Um, what causes us to pause here is his problematic vow and its outcome. We see in verse 30 that Jephthah made a vow to God and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. First thing we should be asking here is what exactly is he offering, Right? I mean, it, it, it sounds dangerously close to him offering a human sacrifice, which we touched on before, but that surely can't be the case, right? There must be another way of reading this. Well, the conclusion I came to, and the conclusion that I think a lot of scholars have come to, is simply that he was offering a human sacrifice to God. As uncomfortable as that is to read a judge offering a, a human sacrifice, um, that's what happened. And there, briefly, I'll go through a few points just to kind of go through who Jephthah was and why this is probably most likely. But um, the first reason is simply that it's unlikely that a home like his probably had animals inside, right? He had no reason to expect a lamb or a goat to be the first thing he saw walk out of his house. Secondly, it should be safe to assume that animals in the ancient world, like today, did not normally go out to meet returning conquerors. So (laughs) expecting your turtle dove to like fly to the house as soon as you get back from beating a large army doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Um, and finally, I think most convincingly, we can look at Jephthah himself. So look at what his past was like, where he grew up, and how that influenced his decisions. <coughs> so we look at the land of Tob, which is the land where he lived as an outcast from his family in Gilead, and that was a land filled with pagans, right? Pagans are a, a land of non-Israelites who followed their own customs and their own gods, many of which the Israelites themselves worshipped when they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you kind of see this back and forth between cultures, gods, and whatnot. Um, Human sacrifice in this world, in the pagan world, was the way in which you bought off a god, so you secured his blessing. So for Jephthah, this makes perfect sense, right? He's grown up in this culture that accepts a human sacrifice, um, and it's a human, like, there's, there's a tangible sacrifice here that Jephthah can make to know that his god is going to be there for him. It's not just a, a belief, it's a I've given something and I get something back in return. He thought, Jephthah thought this sacrifice was necessary to cure his victory, to secure his victory. Jephthah, because he had been so affected by his time amongst the morally questionable bandits and their pagan worship, thought God needed to be impressed and bought with a gift, with a show of devotion and sacrifice. But we see no prompt from God for a sacrifice. We, in fact, see quite the opposite, which is where we kind of find this tension, right? God specifically says in Deuteronomy 18.10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or do- his daughter as an offering. Pretty obvious, okay? Leviticus 18.21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, 
and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. There's numerous other accounts of God telling his people not to sacrifice humans. On top of that, we already see earlier, I think it's verse 28 and 29, um, God had already blessed Jephthah with his spirit. So he had no reason to secure any other favors from God. He had all he needed. You see, Jephthah was so concerned with his victory that he recklessly promised a sacrifice out of ignorance. What makes his ignorant recklessness worse is that he could have found a way out of the sacrifice. In Leviticus 28, there are actually specific equivalent sacrifices of human worth. Um, So none of this tragedy was actually necessary. And you'll tell me, Reuben, that, that makes this even worse. Why are you saying that? Well, yeah, it does. It makes it worse. A reckless vow is bad enough, but following through and later knowing it was unnecessary, that just adds misery to the pain. But this is the real world, right? That's what happens. A world is filled with mistakes and with tragedy and with heartbreak. It's a world that God enters into. And the author of Judge seems keen on demonstrating this imperfect salvation. Although God delivers Israel from the oppression of the Ammonites, we'll see next week they're still under the power of the idols, right? And they will do evil again in the sight of the Lord. They are saved from this situation, but not from their idolatry. Time after the time, the Israelites require a savior, and time after time, that savior brings an incomplete salvation in one form or another. It's never enough. But just as we see a reflection of the perfect savior in Jephthah as an imperfect, as Jephthah as the imperfect deliverer, we see in the marred salvation that Jephthah brings, we see a sign pointing to the perfect salvation that was to come later in Jesus' death on the cross. The salvation through Jesus is not a salvation that is marred by ignorance or idolatry, but is a perfect and full salvation that is fueled by the reckless love God has for us, for his people. God desires us to be his children so strongly that he sent his son to take our place and die for us, to deliver us from the power of sin. And this is the fulfillment of a promise, like a vow, that goes back to Genesis 3, that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. And this is not a reckless vow. God has full knowledge of the consequences and knew that this was the only option. And because God loved us so, he sent his son, Jesus, so that we would no longer be ruled by our idols, so that our idols would no longer hold dominion over us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that freeing? God loves us so intensely and so recklessly that he gave up his own son to take the wrath that we deserve. You and I and the Jephthahs of this world can find comfort despite our failures in the recklessness of God's love. As we finish here and we go our separate ways, um, I would encourage you to meditate on what that freedom looks like um, and what it feels like as it's made possible through Jesus. Um, Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jephthah. I thank you for the, the sign that you've used him as to point us to Jesus, um, to show us your salvation, to show us your love and how reckless that is and how you pursue us no matter the cost. I thank you for what you've done, um, for what you will do. I thank you that you love us despite our failures um, and you love us as we are. I thank you that we are, we are freed from our, from our idols. We don't have to follow them. Um, because of your sacrifice for us. And you're my prayer. Amen.